Salutation Shades, and welcome back to Talking with Shadows, the one-stop shop for all things strange and unusual. Today with your host, Marcus D. And joining me in the studio today, guys, I have another guest host. Please welcome to the studio, Frank Hessians. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, For those of you that are veterans to our channel and our content, uh, Frank joined me uh, in the episode over the Rue Guru uh, the Louisiana werewolf story that we covered down there, which actually, uh, whenever uh, Vic took a leave of absence uh, and I had some guest hosts come in to fill in for him, that is the most popular video out of any of the hosts uh, that actually came to join me. So I thought it'd be a great idea to bring Frank back into the studio today as we continue our talk on immortality as today we're going to be talking about Nicholas Flamel. Now, I don't know for those of you that are uh, familiar uh, with our last episode that we did, but we did an episode on adrenochrome. During that uh, episode, many of you uh, expressed your condolences to Vic, who lost his father recently. Uh, He wanted to let you guys know he super appreciated that, and I let him know. And he should be coming back to the studio, I I would guess, either by the next episode or the episode after that, you know... um, we're not rushing them, guys. We're, you know, any, if you've ever been through something like that, you know, you need to take your time and and do it at your speed. So today, me and Frank are going to dive, continuing our talk on immortality. We're going to be looking at uh, Nicholas Flamel. So Frank, have had you been aware of Nicholas Flamel prior to to uh, me asking you about it? The name like ring a bell and then i was like mm, why does it ring a bell and you were all like uh harry potter and i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely harry potter the sorcerer's stone if those of you guys were like what that and that i'm like absolutely yeah. uh, it was actually the title of that book i'm pretty sure it was supposed to be nicholas uh like harry potter and the philosopher's stone yeah uh, but I, they had to change it because i don't think people really understood what that meant like they didn't really that. understand that, like the the the, philosoph- the philosopher's stone is actually a a magic item of myth, supposedly of myth. But we're going to be talking today. Could it be a reality? Yeah, and and I thought that was pretty wild. I was all like, weird how they like took that name away. And when I looked at like the justifications, apparently the, uh, the um, I think it got republished through Scholastic and. Uh, that time around, they were like, uh, Philosopher's Stone's too archaic. <laughs> and per- first off, this is a children's book, man. Like, they do not care <laughs> what the name of that stone is. Yeah, I, I think when I first read the Harry Potter, the Harry Potter, and that's how old I sound now. When I first read that book, when it first came out, I was like 13. And I think if you're a 13 or 10 to 13 year old and you know what the Philosopher's Stone is, first of all, you're an incredible kid, by the way. (laughs) But you are in a very small minority, let alone any adult that might actually know what the Philosopher's Stone is. Yeah, kids don't care, man. They could have called it the Hoosie, Housie, What It Stone and the kids would have read that damn book. (laughs) Absolutely. So guys, what we're going to do is, you know, there's some... 
there's kind of some uh, some accuracy in you know in the Harry Potter with what they were in the universe for what they were trying to do uh, with the Sorcerer's Stone uh, and Nicholas Flamel. So what we're going to do today, guys, is we're going to break down uh, that story first. I mean, that's where the conversation is going to start. We'll see wherever it goes. Uh, we're going to teach you. We're going to talk to you guys today about uh, more of that story. Uh, and we're going to kind of pick it apart a little bit and kind of see what we can kind of expand upon. Uh, and if those of you guys who have not been able to tell so far, uh, Frank's Zooming or he's Skyping uh, into the studio for this because of COVID. Uh, I recently got overcoded two weeks ago or a couple weeks ago uh, and uh, trying to be a little bit more responsible uh, for how we record the episodes in here. All right. You ready to dive into this, Frank? Yeah, yeah. I, and I will say, um, you know, like, having been, like, freshly researching Nicholas Flamel, let me say, uh, YouTube video-wise, unless you speak Spanish <laughs> or you are looking for strictly Harry Potter version of Nicholas Flamel, there is not a lot of actual YouTube video content on this guy. There oh, was no, a no. few... Yeah. There was a few videos that include him, um, but as far as literary research goes, unless you're looking for the fictional version, not a lot of actual YouTube videos. So this is a, uh, as far as the podcast goes, as far as uh, you guys uploading it out there into the, the World Wide Web, it's going to be uh, uh, touching on some things that not a lot of people are going to actually have some information on. Uh, and I'm kind of happy that we're doing Nicholas Flamel in this episode because uh, if you guys checked out our last episode on Adrenochrome, uh, that's a very dark topic when it comes to immortality. Um, <laughs> it, yep. it is. And, you yep. know, I hope that you that when, whoever listened to it, I, that I did it justice, I did it right, and I did it the best that I could when we were talking about it. Uh, oh, Nicholas, did. yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. I mean, there's still <laughs> way more to talk about it, and I can tell you now there's going to be a part two to that at some point. But anyway. But Nicholas Fromell is a much uh, lighter topic. Uh, mm-hmm. I found if you guys are really trying to look into uh, immortality stories. So Nicholas Fromell himself, like if you if you dive into him and you think about him, you think of him as this, uh, as an alchemist. That's what people's initial thought of Nicholas Fromell comes in. Nicholas Fromell actually was more known in the time he was living as a manuscript and, uh, and scribe. Like, he owned a shop, and that was what he did for a living, was he made manuscripts, he repaired manuscripts, uh, and, he, and he gathered them together uh, in, in Paris, France, in the 14th and 15th century. He, he lived in there uh, with his wife, and I always butcher her name. I'm going to try to say this out phonetically. Perinel. Perinel Flamel. I think is how you say her. It's how you pronounce her name. Okay, I got you now. Uh, and they lived in Paris, France for a while running this shop. And after he died, he did not become known generally as an alchemist, as far as we know, until far, far later yeah. uh, in the 17th century, whenever new published works of his were, were coming out. People were, were putting together, they were claiming they put together work that he had been working on uh, at the time and published it under his name, uh, well, saying that at the time he was, uh, he was working on this alchemical formula for turning lead into gold and immortality. 
Yeah, that was the, uh, I think if I remember correctly, that was the, um, he did some illustrational works for the um, alchemical symbols. Mm -hmm. And whenever somebody published all the work, the introduction painted him up as this alchemist who was searching for gold. And there was this like grand, um, um, like introduction. I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes. Like it, like it was, a uh, talks about his traveling to Spain Mm -hmm. and how he was looking for translations for the uh, manuscripts. And then he meets this sage who identifies uh, that the book that Flamel is holding and wanting to get translated is the Flamel uh, and the Mage. And, uh, um, and then apparently he's like, oh, thanks for letting me know, kind sage. And <laughs> the book for like several years and then comes out with this decoded book that he gets a philosopher's stone from, and they actually say he first produced silver in 1382, and then gold. And I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, oh, okay. What I thought was wild is uh, in that introduction, uh, they just say it's just a, a, a sage that that he meets on the on his things. But I actually saw additional research that actually had an actual name for this guy. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? No, I didn't see the name of him. That well, his title is the Wandering Jew, and it's this myth, like this mythical immortal character who's supposed to be really prevalent in Europe around like the 13th, 14th century area. Area, and he's supposed to be connected to the crucifixion of Christ, mm. either because he himself taunted Christ while he was on the cross, or because he was like Pontius Pilate's, uh, you know, door greeter. Mm -hmm. So there's already, like, this heavy religious element already. Like, as soon as you get into, like, the history of this, there's already this heavy religious element that the guy who tells Lamel about, like, the book and the secrets is this potential, like, immortal Jewish character who's doomed to wander the land. Yeah, that's a part of this story that's just left out i i think when with people that are even in the know on the story of nicholas Flamel is they don't really understand the uh, the real religious undertones uh that occur in this book that he supposedly had decoded yeah and one of the one of the weird things that i that i that i found was the book that supposedly gets published about flamel you know even though he lives in france this book actually gets published in london like in a and the book that it, that supposedly is published, it's called The Exposition of Hieroglyphical Figures. And if... I, I dived really deep into this book because I really wanted to know more about exactly what is the method. Because I think a lot of time when people think of alchemists, they're thinking of this, like, uh, you know, a chemist, like this chemist of ancient times hiding in a hut, like early... Uh, chemistry and 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 that was part of it. That that was an element that was a part of that. Um, but there is a there are strong like uh, magical undertones for ancient alchemy, and especially even in the book that Nicholas Flamel supposedly had uh, had, dec had decoded. The book that he that he supposedly decoded used uh, this magical formula called 
uh, magical squares. And if you don't know what magical squares are, uh, think a Sudoku puzzle with letters instead of numbers. And this would have been the method that supposedly at least the road, at least I would say the vehicle that Flamel probably had to take in order to transmute, you know, lead into gold and eventually gaining immortality is using these things called magic squares. So what you would do, and I'm breaking this down because I had to get Vic to help me out with this because you know way more about this. He had to explain it to me. So what you would do is say you wanted to do something, you wanted to make something that would let you breathe underwater. So that's the that's the classical uh, example that's in this book. And what you would do is you would take a word for water. And sometimes you even have to figure out what word that is in what language. And you would put it in your square, just like a Sudoku. So you'd have to do water up, down, left, right, mixed up, all in this in order to find the right combination to complete the square. And then you would take, once you have the square, you essentially have discovered the the true name, not necessarily, but at least you have a, a better magical understanding of the word, and that allows you to appeal it to a higher being to essentially create the spell or create the effect that you were going for. And that is an extreme over oversimplification of of what I said in there. But that's honestly the easiest way that I can just break it down. I think Vic probably, if he was here, he could explain it better. But it's still super complicated when you're trying to do it. Uh, two other very famous people that used this method of magic. Uh, one uh, a person you guys may not know, Jonathan D by the way, who uh, who I take my name uh, from, that's the word that I take my pen name from, uh, used this formula. He did use this. As well as Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley was very known for using magical squares in his magical practices. That's spooky. He's a creepy spooky dude. I mean, anybody that is, you know, eerie enough to have Ozzy Osbourne write a song about you, you know, I mean, that's, that, that's a creepy dude. And it, it it really changes the, I think for me, the the way that you think about Nicholas Flamel when you're trying to think about how he achieved immortality through this process. Now, I'm not saying this exactly is the way that he, that he did it, like, verbatim, but this is definitely the roadmap that he must have taken. You know, we've been able to at least translate this book now to the point where we at least understand that magical squares was the uh, tools that was used in order to in this book so if this supposedly is where nicholas from got it this is at least the the vehicle that he got to get there well and one of the biggest things on alchemy is the fact that a lot of the the knowledge is through symbology and with, with a lot of the terms, you know, that we actually see people using in alchemy, um, when they say philosopher's stone, there is a lot of definitions as to what it actually is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. stone some, can be some, a very ambivalent term. Yeah. And and that, that, that was something that, uh, through what I was looking through on, on, you know, the philosopher's stone, particular era where Nicholas Flamel was researching alchemy. This is where 
alchemy was starting to evolve kind of towards chemistry. Like mm-hmm. this is this is kind of that, that era. And that really actually hits its peak around the 1600s because, uh, well, r- right here, what you said about, about that book being published in England at that time, that uh, the, the book that, that he actually wrote, that Nicholas Flamel, Flamel wrote, mm-hmm. um, that's actually the time frame. I think it was uh, uh, 1404, England outlawed alchemy <laughs> because wow. King Henry IV was like, they're going to take an element and they're going to double it. They're going to clone it. Mm-hmm. If they do that with gold and silver, they'll be able to overthrow us. And then now we're going to have another uprising on our hands. And apparently, like, Henry IV dealt with many uprisings already at that point. So probably at that point, he was like, we're going to stop it before it starts. And he was just like, we're just we're just banning alchemy. So it's like, the, you know, the the, the monarchy is, is scared of it at that point. But... Like you said, he's French. He's in Paris, France. So it's not even like he's even in, you know, England to be, you know, persecuted by the king. So I thought that was really wild. But uh, but anyway, going back to what I was saying, though, about the the symbology of, of the stone, the stone in itself actually, you know, could be anything. Like, like I mean, it doesn't, it, uh, some describe it as red or white. Some say it's an actual rock. Some say that the stone is a metaphor or a euphemism for something else entirely. Um, I started digging into some other stuff, and it can get real religious real quick as far as what the stone actually represents. Oh, abso- absolutely, and and that and that's very uh, common throughout alchemy for there to be these uses of uh, metaphors. An alchemy because that's something too that I think people don't really understand about alchemy is it's not very straightforward. Ancient alchemists, it was super common that one of the things that they would do is they would cover their tracks uh, and keep their work hidden uh, using codes, using symbols, using metaphors. Uh, there's even accounts of alchemists using paintings uh, to hide their formulas and their equations. They would hide it in art, in tapestries. Uh, so that way people cannot replicate their work. And I think there's two reasons for that. There's two reasons for that, that this could be for. One, and obviously we're going to throw it out there. Um, if, you know, if, if you've discovered, if you're a fraud and you're really just, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors, you don't want people to tr- be able to replicate your work and not be able to do it. I mean, that's part of the scientific method is being for people to be able to replicate it. So if you're a charlatan, you don't want people to know what it is. You want to keep your way you do the secret. But the other reason uh, for why you'd want to do this is because if you have uh, tapped into something or one of that's really dark or one of the ingredients uh, is something that is not uh, uh, socially acceptable, that is another reason about why you would want to keep this under wraps. And I talked about this in our adrenochrome video because I, uh, because I was saying, and I was saying like, if you, if you had a, a, uh, a component to your alchemy being something like, you know, the sucked essence of fear of children, that is absolutely something that you would probably not walk around telling people that 
you do on the regular or that you can. That is the fastest way, probably, uh, to make yourself public enemy number one. I mean, kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just don't see, the, like, the whole, uh, hey, man, you want to, like, gnaw this adrenaline gland? And somebody's all like, sure, where'd it come from? Oh, don't ask, don't tell. You know, it's yeah. like, no. If you think about, too, the, the element of alchemy, especially with magical squares and how they work, again, you have to appeal to some sort of higher being. Now, mm -hmm. in uh, the book that Nicholas Samel supposedly used, you, and I think John D was the same way, if I'm correct, but don't quote me on this one, um, but I know for at least in the book that Flamel was supposed to have used, that said that you, you complete the square and then you appeal to an angel, like a like an angel, uh, for the effect of whatever that you're going for. Well, so, well, it says like that. That's one thing I thought was really wild. Is in that era they actually identified there were two types of magic, and the two types are the ones where you either make deals with demons mm -hmm. or the deals that you make with deeds. You know, like oh, or absolutely. the divine. But, like, in eastern regions, there was even a Philosopher's Stone variant for, like, one that Buddha actually held. Or, like, a Philosopher's Stone that, like, different other eastern cultures actually had. And I thought that was actually kind of wild is that uh, um, one of the ones that, um, one of the videos I actually I stumbled across, I actually found this one that uh, showed me, um, it was talking about uh, comparisons on terminology and comparing it to uh, Masonic um, mm -hmm. information. Because, like, they were saying, like, how, like, Freemasons use certain terms and terminology to reference things within their own order. Mm -hmm. And they were like, it's really similar towards how, like, alchemists were. Like, Absolutely. alchemists Absolutely. would use symbols and terms that didn't actually pertain to what they were really working with because it was about what it represented not what it actually was. And they, they incorporated like the faith aspect with that as well. I thought that was actually really interesting is the idea of immortality. They were even arguing it may not be immortality on the mortal plane, but on the spiritual plane. You see, and, 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 and that's where I, I started having to think a little bit more about, you know, the method that Nicholas Flamel supposedly used, you know, using magic squares and in appealing to supposedly some sort of angelic being. Because again, if you if you look at it, one hundred percent of just this is the book he used. This is the route that he did, and he appealed to some sort of angel. Well, that means that he's appealing to an angel. You know, either a like a Christian version of an you know Christian version of an angel or a Jewish version of an angel. Now, I can I can buy maybe um, getting getting material wealth, being blessed by something. I I, I can I can write that away uh, in in a way. But when the when you, when I think about immortality, and I think about you know if you look at those two faiths and how you know, how they view immortality and, and, and lasting life. Like, again, if you're, like, if you're looking at it from the Christian perspective, immortality, the only way that you live forever, spiritually, you know, or physically, is through, you know, accepting Jesus Christ, and, and that's the only way. I mean, he says that. I am the way. I'm the only way. And if you 
look at it from the Jewish perspective for how you're going to live forever. And again, I'm from what I remember about like how the Jewish faith works again, the only way that you get to paradise and, and, you know, long lasting paradise up there is through good deeds. Mm -hmm. And I don't really see alchemy as um, necessarily a good deed thing. Like what you're doing it for. I don't know. I don't, I just don't see either way why an angelic being would you know. grant somebody immortality. So that makes me wonder is he going out to some other sort of immortal being? Because I, ju I just can't see the, the Abrahamic faiths, angels, or God granting this. Well, you know, it's 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 like, hey, you, you know, you really went down a, a certain path and you dedicated yourself. And, hey, it wasn't the one we actually wanted you to take. But we're going to appreciate your good efforts and go ahead and let you in anyway or something like that, you know. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I no, I can't, I can't see it. Maybe from the Jewish perspective, again, if it, if it's a you you have to do good deeds. Like if he's making some sort of bargain, but again, you know, if you're making some sort of bargain that you're going to do good deeds with what you're doing, like his, you know, he was very well off. His wife, uh, per NL, I think a full male, she had uh, acquired a lot of wealth through a previous marriage. That two. she had, it was like, yeah, two, two yeah, two previous, previous marriages, yeah. and even on their, and even on their deathbed, like even on their deaths, they were very charitable people. So I could definitely see it from the perspective of I will, I will give you immortality, uh, but in order to do that, you're gonna have to use your immortality for good and helping other people, and maybe that was the way that they did it was they just offered charity. Um, you know, maybe they just offered to just care for people throughout, uh, throughout their immortality. Maybe that was the the deal they had to make. Well, and and I think that that's something that, whenever it comes to the idea of good works, we're now that's a very morally subjective term. So now, so now we're actually looking at stuff. So, so what would what would the divine determine as good works? You know, it's like, are, are, is is it a noble pursuit, life free of sin, or is it a life that enriches the lives of others? You know, and so it's like we have to, we have to kind of assess at that point. I mean, to me, that's so, um, that's so easy to, you know, argue one way or another. Noble deeds being something that actually leads towards immortality. It's like, you know, since it's so subjective, it's kind of like a hard way to kind of rank and, and identify, like, what is that, you know, going to be? It's like, you know, how do you actually determine that? So, so as far as that being like, I, I kind of joked as a backdoor pass kind of gets you in, you know, you know, <laughs> kind of way. I, I don't see that being a thing because that's a very subjective thing. I mean, are you going to have a divine lawyer angel that's going to argue your case before the, the jury up there and, mm. and argue your way in through the back door? Or, you know, like, like how, how's that work? Um, so, well, so I, 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 well, I mean, the Bible is, especially even in the Old Testament, I mean, it's it's full of people that have the divine that comes to them that are very specific on what they want them to do. Don't eat this fruit. Build this ark. Let my people go. <laughs> but so it could be one of those of, of when they did it that they had to be very specific of what are you going to do uh, with this power that they gave you. But even then, man, I, immortality seems to be, um, I don't know. It just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to be in the wheelhouse. 
of those faiths. Right. Well, and as far as the idea of him practicing alchemy, uh, reading up on like the superstition aspect of it, because like I said, you know, in this era, you know, when, when he was alive, which granted, you know, it's a long time ago. People can have maybe some dates wrong by a few years, but it's estimated, like you said, the, the 14th to 15th, that's about the that's about the range that, that we're looking at here. And this is the era where alchemy took that kind of, you know, superstitious turn from the monarchies and people were kind of like, hey, they practice alchemy, ooga booga booga. You know, like like kind of like with in the you know in the United States with the Salem witch trials. Um, it, to me, it's one of those things where alchemy could have been seen as like a kind of like a spooky thing to kind of justify why somebody got to where they were. And again, man, you want to talk about people's perceptions on things? Let's keep in mind again the time that Nicholas Flamel is living. The dude is literally living at the turn of the third, uh, the 14th and 15th century. Uh, he lived to be 88 years old during the bubonic plague. When the bubonic plague was ravaging Europe, this dude lived to be 88 years old when the average life expectancy of a person was 40. Yeah, forty. He would, but he wasn't yeah. getting COVID. No, he was not. No, he was not. He <laughs> he was on to something. And on top of that, even a century later, after he supposedly died, the average life expectancy in France is still at best seventy at this time, and which I, by the way, thought was incredibly impressive, and uh, even for then. But I was like, this dude lived to be eighty-eight years old. His wife lived to be seventy-seven. So both of them are just completely overshooting how long somebody is supposed to be living uh, during this time period. So it really is easy to kind of, to kind of see why people might think that this guy might have the secrets to, you know, longevity. I, I'm not going to lie. It does raise an eyebrow because statistically women outlive their husbands. Oh, absolutely. And in that time frame. Like, like, that's even more of a red, like, like, like of a, you know, you got some red lights flashing there. It's kind of like, wait a second, you know, more often than not, men did more of the, you know, I, I guess, risky duties that were going to get you sick and eventually dead. And Nicholas Flamel was a super librarian. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, 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 managed to, during one of the most toxic periods in human history, not only survive, still outlive most people, even in the era that he actually did pass away. Yeah, not only did he survive, he thrived. And another thing that I found weird too was you would you would think that again, if if Nicholas Flamel had tapped into the secrets of immortality, something that I noticed was that his wife supposedly passed away before him. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's supposed to be like this romantic happily ever after. Supposedly they both discovered it and that's how they could that's how they could go on. But again, he supposedly she passed before him. So I don't know. Did he hope I hope he didn't practice on her. And that was the first thing he did. I don't know. But, you know, or, you know, I, I would think if you're going to be married to somebody for, you know, probably over 40 years, 
that, uh, you know, if they passed away and that was supposedly what drove you to maybe seeking immortality, maybe she passed away and then he, uh, you know, that's when he found immortality shortly after that. I don't know if, you know, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could, would, would want to do that that late in life. Well, maybe, I mean, it could be, it could be a couple things. You know, it could be like he was brewing the formula and he was like, here, here, baby, drink this. It's going to make you forever. And then she's like, wow, and then falls over. And then like, he's like, oh, got the measurements wrong. And then he like, you know, adjusts it or something. But it could have, could have been something as simple as, um, in order to live forever and be undisturbed, we need to fake our deaths. And then the whole idea there is that I need you to pretend to die first. Because we both die simultaneously, it's too suspicious. You know, I, I would really wonder what people would say about Nicholas Flamel closer to the time that he was supposedly dying. I really wonder about, like, if there's any change of his character that occurs at this time. Because I've been saying it throughout the course of our of our discussion and immortality that I think honestly one of the hardest parts about being immortal would be the the relationships that you have with people and how hard that would be because again if you live we're, we're people human beings are social creatures okay right and if you're an immortal being and you watch all of those you care about die around you. I think it would cause you to not want to create relationships with people around you because, again, you know that you're going to lose them. And at the same time, uh, that's going to have an effect on your psyche. Uh, well, and I don't think, I mean, the, and I don't think for the better. I I agree with you. If the person was normal, if they were what we would identify in today's standards as antisocial. Yeah and convenient relationships with people simply as a means to an end as they live their life almost kind of like a Bram Stoker's Count Dracula kind of sense I guess that's a whole other level of immortality well you you no. can approach that at a different time <laughs> no I no I no I, th I think no but I think but I think you're right that's what happens is you become very cold you become very disconnected you become yeah, very dis you become Dr. Manhattan from yes. the Watchmen you become exactly. disconnected, you know, disconnected from the human existence. Yeah. Uh, and I, th I mean, it's going to come out in your person. It's going to come out in your personality. Yeah. So I have a very hard time, like, unless you come up with some sort of way to uh, handle the mortality. I mean, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, Anne Rice's, uh, uh, like, in her Vampires book, she addresses that. Like, they had to find some sort of method if they're going to live forever. They had to come to terms with that in some sort of way. Like, if you think, like, Queen of the Damned, like, yeah. the painter matriarch vampire of that family, the way that she literally was able to keep her psyche together was she uh, kept safe, like, her, the great family is what they call it. Like, she became a caretaker of their family. She found yeah. some way to be able to handle that sort of immortality. So it makes me wonder if Nicholas Flamel was able to do that and continued to be able to do that, what did he... What did he? What did he do? If I had to make a guess, and if I had to make a guess, I would say probably he continued his work as a manuscript uh, collector, because I think you could. I think you could do that in a way of being able to stay connected with humanity, of 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 collecting like great literary works. 
throughout time. I mean, one of the things I love to do is I love to collect um, like old role playing books. That's one of the things I love to collect and uh, and read them and appreciate them. And I think if he did something like that, I think he'd. If I had to make a guess, I would say that's how he came to he came to terms with immortality. So he's a librarian somewhere. Yeah, I I, I think he could do it. I th- that might, in a way, honestly, be able to make it so that he could continue to connect with people and connect with humanity because without that i just don't see what else i don't i just don't see what else he did i don't i didn't read anywhere about him having kids he may have i'm not sure but i I didn't find anything on children either um which would be interesting especially if any of your uh, followers would want to comment on that and be like hey this this was his kid that'd be an interesting thing for us to see later absolutely but one of the things that I think is is interesting, uh, uh, as far as like the that idea of of him like um, as a person that we we know historically did exist, we actually have like a lot of information on this guy. You know his his marriage. You know like like you know the works he did for people, but this idea of aspect, I almost I was really shocked to see like a. Apparently, it's like, like, like I said before, it was such a like a, and even today, like you, if you bring up alchemy or the idea of the philosopher's stone, I mean, heck, with that Harry Potter thing, you know, immediately they were they were wanting to, well, let's not say that word, let's not say philosopher's stone, you know, that that that's too archaic, we can't have people talking about that. Um, but then whenever you reference other people like Isaac Newton who was into alchemy and seeking the philosopher's stone. And then they talk about him and they're like, Oh, well, well, he was one of the grandfathers of chemistry. And it's like, first off, you, you can't, you can't use it as a slanderous term for one of these dudes. And then immediately like come over here and say, Oh, but this guy who practiced alchemy, this, this guy knew, knew about something because like whenever I was researching what Isaac Newton thought about um, the idea of, alchemy and, and the philosopher's stone his approach was a lot different so isaac newton was an alchemist looking for the philosopher's stone i didn't know that well yeah yeah uh, well well that was the thing apparently like okay like everybody's like oh you know he, he contributed much to like you know optics and to astronomy and, and 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 physics and it's like okay well a fraction of the rest went to alchemy like he, he a majority of his work went to alchemy and some people like and and diss like alchemists um and, and and give him a bunch of crap like the dude who you guys credit with discovering gravity was an alchemist and that's like a huge thing is is um you know his his pursuits of his studies combining his theories with alchemy um, it starts to kind of beg into question, you know, what did he actually think the Philosopher's Stone did? And he and... would have actually had the ability to to have Nicholas Flamel's, you know, supposed work, or at least his supposed works, uh, like 40 years later. Because by the time that uh, by the time that Isaac Newton, I think, enters college, uh, it's about 40 years later after. Uh, Nicholas Flamel's manuscript is supposedly posted again, uh, is published in London. So Isaac Newton would have had access to this book, and he would have had access to at least the the, the groundwork that supposedly Nicholas Flamel left. Yeah. 
and I know that because of the era that uh, that book was published, Isaac Newton was very hesitant to talk about his his interests in alchemy. Like he did not want people to know how much he was into it. But um, no, and I, I believe that too, man. If you if you think about anybody that practices any sort of uh, you know magical art. I know many of my coworkers that have done that that don't tell people at work. Most, so many of my coworkers, uh, so many of my coworkers do not know how many people actually practice magical arts. You would be surprised how much people keep that to themselves uh, for fear of repercussions. Well, I mean, let's be real. I mean, you know, you work in a psychological community and you start telling people you're practicing magic, they're uh, they're going to look at you a little different. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. But um, but not to discredit or disprove it. I mean, it's just one of those things that whenever you have the the organized thought, be alchemy is, and, and and that's why I think like for for uh, Flamel, the uh, the idea of um, his his research and his pursuits, and then it having such like a a negative connotation behind the idea of him seeking that philosopher's stone. Like, people often say, oh, well, they're seeking the Philosopher's Stone, and there's always this selfish agenda. Like, very rarely do you hear people say they're seeking it for the betterment of humanity. It's always for this, like, personally driven cause. Oh, absolutely, and, yeah. And, and, and with um, Isaac Newton, for example, you know, involving gravity and how gravity has, you know, like, like as far as our understanding of gravity having influence over time, um, one of the things that I remember, uh, while doing research for this, we, uh, what, what, what is it? Is it radium that decays and turns into another element? Let's go with that. For the purpose I, I, of this podcast, let's go with that. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so, so a periodic element and it has, it's radioactive and as it decays eventually turns into another element. So right. we understand I, actually, that, like, I think, the, I, the more that I think about it, I think the answer is no, it is not radium that he was talking about. Well, it's not radium, but what? No, I think that was Ben Curie that did that. Sorry. Oh, is, is, is that okay? But anyway, but the idea being like in scientific circles, transmutation was witnessed in lab settings, basically. Like, right. they're watching elements convert into other elements. So it's like stuff like that where you're breaching alchemy is so close to chemistry. And these guys in the 1400s understood that. And it just, I, I think that, that right there in itself, is, it's kind of mind-blowing. So people like Nicholas Flamel, I mean, you know, people nowadays might give you kind of like, you know, might kind of scoff and be like, oh, those crackpot alchemists. No, no, I think, dude, I, I think it, they, it wasn't 50. Yeah, and again, and they also might want to keep it quiet because, again, it's only 50 years after Nicholas Femel supposedly died, air quotes, that the Spanish Inquisition happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yep. I, you know, people need to have some context as to as, as a little bit about why people would probably want to keep this secret of what they were of what they were doing. So, you know, because this gives you a lot of power. And, and again, if somebody else doesn't have that power, that makes you a threat. Right. You know. Right. You know, that's just food for thought on that. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add about Nicholas Flamel or 
or, or anything else on the Philosopher's Stone or anything else on alchemy that we've talked about so far? Well, um, I will say one of the things was that uh, the book um, that it said that on his way back from from Spain, the 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 sage that he reportedly met identified Flamel's book as being a copy of the original book of Abramel and the Mage. Mm-hmm. So then I looked into that book. And then Abramel and the Mage is actually a story of an Egyptian mage named Abraham, or Abramelin. Right. Who taught the magical works um, to Abraham of Worms, who's a Jew in Worms, Germany. So, again, we're, we're... so you have an Abraham or Melon, you know, so so I, I guess like the names are interchangeable, but Abermelon taught magic to Abraham mm-hmm. of Worms in, in Germany or Worms, Germany. We I talked about that myth of the wandering Jew aspect. It's possible that the wandering Jew is Abraham of Worms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, this guy was actually presumed to live, Abraham of Worms was presumed to live from uh, 1362 to 1458. So, so he lived during the act- time of Nicholas Flamel. Yes. Yeah. So, so that means that these two dudes could have actually met on the road. Absolutely. You know, at some point. Um, one of the things that... Um, that I think is kind of weird, though, is how this this book, this story, um, actually doesn't really get published mainstream until like, oh, I think it's like, like seventeen hundreds, yeah. I think, or like you know, sometime around there. It's it, and it's and it's published in Germany, but then this guy, this scholar, he um, he's like a German scholar. He actually starts debating about how he believes that this story was originally written by some uh, rabbi and who lived in this time frame as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I mean, like, like people are like, oh, well, it's just legend. Well, okay, it might be just legend, but a lot of these legends, they're syncing up really well. Absolutely. But I have a hard time believing, honestly, though, that the wandering Jew is going to be... Uh, wanting to, because again, I don't think he really truthfully knows a whole lot. Again, if the wandering Jew in mythology is supposed to be cursed with immortality until the end of days. So this is probably not a guy who uh, can handle it well. Uh, and honestly, probably isn't the kind of guy that would want other people to share in his fate, unless he himself is trying to do this as a, uh, I don't know, to help, you know, misery loves company sort of thing. I don't know. Well, and that, that begs into question, is alchemy actually a noble pursuit? <sighs> I have a hard time believing, honestly, that it is. You know, there's there's two, you know, I, I get the whole idea, you know, and I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap up my thoughts on on, on alchemy with this. I, the, the more that I have researched it, there's two elements of it. One is that there's this huge secrecy behind it. And again, as I said before in the beginning of the episode, the only reason why you would have the secrecy is A, because you're a charlatan, or B, because some of your uh, components or practices are so dark, you can't have talk about it in the public life. 
right. now as we have covered in this episode at the same time, it's not like necessarily the public light is all that tolerant. So even in a little bit, so even if you were doing something probably that just is, I don't know, mundane or natural, I don't know, or okay, uh, necessarily the, the public light might not necessarily be very tolerant of it uh, when they're doing it. Um I mean, and that begs the question. I'll leave that for you guys to think about that in the comments below. Uh, you know, do you guys think that these alchemists like Nicholas Flamel uh, and, you know, Isaac and other people, do you think that they were hiding their research because, you know, they're charlatans? Is it because they just needed to, to not be persecuted by other people? Or do you think that they, maybe they were doing something dark? I don't know. You know? No. Or maybe at the end of the day, maybe it's just something that part of the journey in alchemy is you have to learn it for yourself. You know, and that's part of the, and that's part of the journey. Maybe that's part of the, the, the quest for it. You know, maybe that's part of the, the success is you had to go on this journey in order to find it. I have no idea, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts about this story and this stuff in general in the comments below. Please let us know. Um, if you have any questions for about Nicholas Fumel, anything you guys will clarify, anything you guys uh, else want us to talk about about this, uh, leave a uh, leave a comment below. Uh, we'll absolutely cover it in the next episode, uh, regardless of whatever uh, guest that I have on or if it's Vic, that'll be even better. Um, if you guys like this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. It's the easiest way uh, to to help us show your appreciation. Definitely relieve a review. That's the best thing you can do uh, to help out uh, the podcast. Leave a review on what you guys think about this. You know, good, bad, ugly. Let us know. It helps us. It helps us get better, guys. Um, Frank, I want to thank you so much, man, for coming on today and, and talking with me. Yeah, always a pleasure. I, I, I greatly appreciate coming in and talking always. Absolutely, guys. Uh, and one thing that I want to leave out too, uh, Frank's been talking for a while about starting his own project called The Whiskey Conspiracies, where he talks about conspiracy theories. And I'm telling you guys, he tell it man do you guys think that he needs to be doing it put it in the comments below let us know you yeah because i've been trying to arm twist him forever to get him to do it yeah. with <laughs> that guys i think uh, that is where we'll wrap up at least today's episode um so until next time guys keep believing because we'll keep listening now we're going to continue this podcast uh for a little bit uh where uh, we continue talking for uh, a little bit longer for our patrons. The segment that we call the Pillow Talk. The Pillow Talk segment is a uh, segment where we keep going a little bit, talking more about maybe this subject or another subject uh, around immortality. Um, if you guys want the rest of this podcast, all you got to do is go over to our Patreon and sign up. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you guys get the full uh, episode of every single podcast episode, as well as a ton of bonus videos that we have put up on our Patreon. So, with that being said, let's keep going. I wanted to talk to you, Frank. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about a guy who is a little unknown character uh, in American uh, politics. Now, you know, for those of you that know me, my, my background in college was political science. And particularly uh, third parties. I've always been fascinated uh, with third parties, how they work, why they form, uh, what's their role 
uh, in government. And honestly, when you look into them, you find literally some of the coolest people uh, to learn uh, more about, even in today's election. I'm not going to go into it, but even in today's election, you just learn all about these really cool people. And I thought it'd be really fun today to talk about one of those people uh, and kind of going along with the theme of immortality. I thought we could talk about Leonard Live Forever Jones. Like, I like, I feel when I say uh, that, like, I have to say it like a boxing <laughs> announcer, man. Like, L Leonard Live Forever Jones sounds like a guy who should be taken on, like, Floyd Mayweather for, <laughs> for like, his championship belt, man. You got to – now, this guy does not look like he's a guy that could take Floyd Mayweather in a fight. I'm just going to throw that out there. But, um, so, Leonard uh, Live Forever Jones was this larger-than-life uh, guy that lived kind of around – the early part of the 19th century, you know, it was 1804 uh, is the time that this guy is kind of making the name for himself. And he was a guy that he got rich being a land speculator uh, in Kentucky. And he got pretty rich doing this, man. He got a whole bunch of money. And then uh, after he got all this money, he decided to do uh, the next, the next thing on his list uh, which was uh, find religion. <laughs> he, he's like, I got a bunch of money. Uh, I'm good. I've got financial wellness. Now I'm, I'm, I'm a religious guy.